You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast as we go through a series on the life and work of Jesus. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Last week, we spent some time in the Lord's Supper, and uh, if you were here with us last week, I had uh, a little... mm, Uh, Passover, some elements from the Passover, and we kind of went through some of those elements and talked about it. And uh, it's so awesome to me that we can see in that God's redemptive plan in Jesus Christ is planned out even through all of these elements of the Passover supper. And, and we know that, but even when we look at like the chalices, the, the silver cups that they use to do the Passover and those types of things, there's a message even in those cups. And so many details, our God is such a detailed God. And it's so amazing as we study the scripture, all of the things that we can see and all of his character, all of his love, everything that he has put here for us to be able to see. Uh, so tonight, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I think most of it will end up being up there on the screen. So uh, you can use digital or uh, we have some back there on the shelf. If you need a Bible, uh, you're welcome to grab one back there. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 and John chapter 18. And I'll be jumping back and forth between these two passages of Scripture. Uh, we'll start in John 18. And tonight's message is called The Garden of Gethsemane, A Surrendered Will a surrendered will. And so most of you guys know this story, uh, but we're going to talk about some of these elements and some of these things um, that are pretty cool uh, that I believe that God showed me through this passage of Scripture, and I just want to be able to share them with you, and I'm really excited to, to be able to do that tonight. So let's pray and see what God has for us tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you uh, for your spirit, Lord, and we just pray tonight that uh, as your word said, that your spirit would teach us, Lord, that your spirit would give us wisdom and insight into your word as we go through your word tonight, Lord. Lord, that we would humbly come before you with open hearts, Lord, ready to receive from you. So, Lord, I just pray as your vessel, Lord, that you would use me to speak truth and life into your congregation, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in your holy name. Amen. So in John chapter 18, that's where we're going to start. John chapter 18. And we're going to start in verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to be reading this in small segments. In the last couple of weeks, I've been reading large chunks of verses and then kind of breaking it down. This week, we're going to do it a little different because I'm jumping back and forth between the different gospels to give you this whole story. Okay, so John 18 and Matthew 26. If you're uh, one of the paper Bible people, you may want to put your finger there or a piece of paper there so you can jump back and forth. I always remember having this, one of those connection cards, I think, in the back of my Bible so that when the pastor was in two or three passages of Scripture, I could just flip back and forth uh, really quickly. I know on the phone it's, it's a little bit easier or on your tablet or whatever you're using. John 18, let's read. And we're using ESB here. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, okay, and this is talking about the Passover, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And that's as far as we're going to go. What's there? Okay, here's the cool part, and this is one of those things that I believe strongly uh, that God showed me when we went to Israel, 
And this is the cool part about traveling to Israel, is God shows you so much about the scripture, okay? And so here's, here's this really amazing thing that's happening in this moment. We know that Jesus and his disciples at the end of the supper were singing these hymns, the Bible says, these psalms, and they were getting ready to go out. Now, where they were, okay, is on the, uh, where the Temple Mount is, okay, uh, and you can come down from there and you go into the Valley Kidron, and the Valley Kidron goes down, you pass the little creek, the Kidron uh, brook, they call it, okay? You pass this little thing, you just cross over. If you grew up uh, anywhere outside of Florida, you know what these little creeks and brooks are with little rocks and stuff across them, okay? And you pass through that, and then you're climbing the Mount of Olives, okay? And as you get to the Mount of Olives, which has great significance in end times, okay? It says that Jesus will come through the Mount of Olives, and when you're in Israel, you see all of these cemeteries around the Mount of Olives, and on the side of the mountain, on the side of the Mount of Olives, by the Golden Gate, okay, the beautiful gate that is on that side, on the east side of uh, the, the, from the Mount of Olives, you can look at this gate, which is part of the Temple Mount, okay? And so, as the wall of Israel, so I hope I'm making sense there, but This is the thing. The Bible says Jesus spoke these words and he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron. We call this this the valley of the shadow of death. Now that should ring some bells, right? Psalm 23. Psalm 23. You guys know that, right? Okay. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now David's not talking about this valley, right? So most people believe that David's talking about En Gedi and uh, some other places further in the south down by the Dead Sea. But here's the reality, and more of a metaphorical valley of death, okay? But here's the reality, okay? Every year during Passover, everybody comes from all over the place and brings their lamb sacrifice. Now, think about that. Thousands upon thousands of lamb sacrifices would be happening in the temple. And the priests during this 24-hour time period would be receiving lambs from different families, taking them to the altar in the temple, sacrificing the lambs. That's a lot of blood. That is a lot of blood. So what do you think the altar looks like? Well, a big old nasty mess, right? So they had a process for cleaning the altar after a few lamb sacrifices, They would take big basins of water and they would pour it over the altar. And right there at the base of the altar was almost like it had a, um, uh, uh, and I can't think of the word. I had it earlier and I can't think of it now. A moat, if you will. Just a tiny one, right? But it's just like a little, uh, like a gutter almost around the altar that would cause the blood not to spread out all over the floor. And so the blood would go into this, and it would go underneath of the temple. Now, underneath of the temple were these little canals, okay? These little canals. And later on, this would become vitally important because the rabbis would hide under there uh, many centuries later, and it would protect them. But these little canals where this blood would run down with the water, and it would pour out a spout out of the side of the mountain into the brook Kidron to get rid of all that blood. 
So on the evening of Passover, Jesus and his disciples walked down the brook Kidron and crossed right over the brook Kidron. And it struck me, Jesus, knowing that he's going to be the lamb sacrifice, washes, looks at the water and the blood mixed together, running down the brook Kidron. Now, when we talk about the crucifixion, We'll, we'll go back to this. We'll circle back to this because what's significant here? Remember the spear up in his side? Remember what washes out? I think there's great spiritual significance as we talk about the sacrifice and the blood needing to be washed away. The blood that washed away our sins is washed away from the altar and done away with. Okay? It's washed away. It's mixed with water. It's washed away. And it goes down into that brook. So Jesus and his disciples, as they cross across this brook, that brook would be trickling with blood and water. Now, the scripture doesn't really uh, say anything about Jesus's process or whatever. So uh, there's a little bit uh, of thought process here. But while I was there, as we crossed down into that area, it struck me. Jesus had to cross across that. And think about that lamb sacrifice. And we know as he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, he's preparing himself to be that lamb sacrifice on the Passover by no mistake. So all of this is a huge part of what's going on here. All right, so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26 uh, because I think it has a great depiction of this story, uh, especially the part about prayer. And most of you guys know this part. And we're going to be in 36 through 46, 36 through 46 in Matthew 26. I told you, jumping back and forth here, excuse me. Okay. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found again them sleeping because their eyes were so heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hand of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. This passage of Scripture, we're going to call it, there is no other way. There is no other way. There is no other way. The Garden of Gethsemane is not exactly what I thought it would be. It's not exactly what I thought it would be. When you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, now remember, they're in the desert. They're in the desert, okay? And so this Garden of Gethsemane would be a privately owned plot of land that somebody had gated off, okay, and kind of turned into this olive grove, 
There's just olive trees everywhere. And so because of the massive amounts of olive trees everywhere and watering them and taking care of them and there would be an olive press in the building that would be in that area. Today there's a church standing in that area. Okay? So it's kind of like somebody's orchard. And so the Bible says that Jesus went there regularly. Well, there would have been a gate. Okay, now that gate could have been propped open or maybe Jesus and his disciples had a key because they knew the owner. They obviously would have had to know the owner if they went there on a regular basis. This was not some public park or somewhere that they went to pray, okay? This was the Garden of Gethsemane and it belonged to somebody. So from the Garden of Gethsemane, standing right there on the Mount of Olives, you can see the temple. You can see the temple mount. You can see the walls. All of the things that Jesus has referred to, all of the prophecies that he's given about how he will return, where he will return, the things that will happen. A lot of this stuff happens in Matthew chapter 24 as we see Jesus talking about a lot of these things. And now we're in Matthew chapter 26. I encourage you, read Matthew 24. Look at all the prophecies that he talks about. He talks about the Mount of Olives. He says that the mountain, when he comes down, will be split and he'll walk right into that gate, which today is sealed up. Because as the Islamic people have taken over the Temple Mount, they know these prophecies and they want to make sure that Jesus can't come in. So they sealed it up. And they also know that Jewish people can't walk into a cemetery. So they planted a whole bunch of dead bodies there. Obviously, they don't know who Jesus is. Because the Bible says the dead will rise in Christ when he returns. So therefore, those dead bodies are not going to be in the way of breaking Jewish tradition and custom and him walking into a graveyard. And secondly, there ain't no bricks because there was no stone that is going to keep Jesus from accomplishing what he's supposed to accomplish. That stone didn't hold him back, and those bricks won't either, okay? So, there they stand praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they can see across the way. They can see everything on the other side. And I love this passage of Scripture, okay? Because we look at this, and Jesus takes the three. Remember the three that he had at the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. And it says here, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, Kind of tells you a little bit about their personality. People were named kind of, uh, that their names meant something. The Sons of Thunder, right? That's a cool name. I want to be called that, right? Y'all call me Zebedee from now on. It means thunder. Yes. Okay, that's just cool. Maybe I've seen too many Marvel superhero movies or something, right? I want to be a son of thunder. Yeah, okay. And he tells his disciples, he says, hey, you guys, you 11, Okay, I mean, you eight, stay here. You three, come with me a little bit further. Now, maybe things had changed, but I'm gonna tell you that the Garden of Gethsemane was no bigger than this plot of land right here beside us where we played cornhole and stuff on July 4th. It was no bigger than that area right there. So just as he came into the door, he left his disciples there. Kind of, hey, just kind of be there, look out, people coming, those types of things. Okay. And then he told Peter, James, and John, and he said, you come with me further. And then he went all the way to the back of the garden where there was a rock. But before he got there, he said, you guys stay right here and pray. I'm going a little bit further. 
And just as John was saying tonight, how beautiful it is to get two minutes alone in complete silence before the Lord. Two minutes. If I was to stop talking for two minutes and just let it be completely silent, you guys would feel so uncomfortable right now. It'd feel like an eternity, to be honest with you. It's not very much time, to be honest, but, okay. So Jesus went ahead, and and he put his head down on this rock, and he prayed. And he said, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Now remember, Jesus had just made a big deal about these cups, this cup of redemption, and he said, I won't drink of the fruit again until I return. But this cup that Jesus is talking about, if you look at the book of Revelation, it says that this payment for sin is the cup of wrath of God. The cup of wrath of God. It's God's wrath poured out upon us. That's one of the consequences of living a sinful life and not being redeemed. And Jesus says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. And then he gets up from his prayer and he goes back to check on his disciples. And they're sleeping. You know, I think we kind of give the disciples a hard time. We're like, you morons, what are you doing? Jesus just said, pray. And you can't even pray for a few minutes. Have you ever had a really long day? Now remember, their day consisted of Jesus telling them at the beginning of the day, hey, go ahead, talk to this guy. This is gonna happen and this is gonna happen and it happened just like that. And then go up to that room, go shopping, buy all the stuff for the supper, cook all of the stuff for the supper, get the lamb ready, get everything ready for the Passover supper, get it all prepared. Now, go up there, let's do the supper, okay? And he's giving them all kinds of instructions and he's telling them all kinds of things and they've just been on full charge all day long. Plus, they just ate this incredible Passover meal. These guys who didn't always have a great meal and you guys know what it feels like after Thanksgiving dinner, don't you? Now, lamb doesn't have the same tryptophan that turkey does, but the concept of a big, healthy meal has the same effect on all of us when we're exhausted. You have a full belly, you're exhausted, and you try to pray. You ever try to pray when you're so tired it's hard to keep your eyes open, guys? I have nighty-night. Nighty-night. I'm serious. That's the first thing that happens. You're like, Lord Jesus, we're just going to have a sweet time prayer. No, 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 no. I'm not going to go to sleep. I'm not going to go to sleep. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to read a little bit before I go to bed, and I'm going to pray because it's just been a rough day, and, 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 and I know that I need to be praying. Lord Jesus. Have you ever done it? Oh, I have so many times. I know personally that if I don't have my personal time with the Lord in the morning, I get up really early, at least an hour before anybody else in my house gets up. Why? Because I know if I wait to the end of the day, I am always so exhausted that as soon as I open my Bible, I'm going to be like, and the Lord 
and I'll be asleep in no time. In no time. And that's where these guys were. Now, we structure our days to make it work. Like I said, I do mine first thing in the morning. I always try to pray a little bit at night before I go to bed. But again, sometimes I fall asleep. And I know God is gracious, and I know he's good. Just like he was to those disciples, he came back and said, hey, guys, you couldn't even pray for me? Like, I'm getting ready. They didn't fully understand everything that was about to happen. And they were weary. And so Jesus went back and he prayed again and he says, Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, take this cup from me. And then he comes back again and they're sleeping again. And eventually he just let them sleep. And he goes back the third time and he prays again, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. If anyone ever tells you that there's any other way to get to God, refer them to this story, to these events, to these events. Jesus, here in his humanity, understanding that he was about to experience God's wrath poured out upon him. He was about to take the sins of the world completely upon him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin, that you and I might become the righteousness of God. We have this concept of Jesus going to the cross with this black trash bag full of our sin that he's about to throw away for us. Guys, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he became that black trash bag full of sin. He became our sin that you and I might receive the righteousness of God. What Jesus was about to experience was far more than any other person that hung on a cross would ever experience. History tells us that when Peter went to the cross, it tells us that when he came, they came to arrest him, to take him to the cross, that he sang a hymn the whole way and told his wife, don't worry about me, I'm going home. And then he got there and he said, hey, guys, I'm not worthy to be crucified like him. You crucify me upside down? They're like, yeah, of course. Seems worse. Sure, let's try it. And so here's Peter singing praises that he's worthy to be crucified at all because of his love for Jesus but unworthy to be crucified in the same way. And here's Jesus sweating great drops of blood. Do you know medical science tells you that you can become in such anguish and despair that your pores will literally start bleeding because those little tiny capillaries in your head actually burst and blood will start pouring down the front of your, your head? That's anguish. What he was about to experience, there's no other way. Jesus knew it. He said it. John 14, 6. John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He knew it. He knew even as he prayed in the garden. But he needed to submit his will. He was fully man and fully God. 
and he understood what he was about to experience. Guys, Jesus was about to be separated. The Bible says that he became our sin and the holiness of God cannot be in the presence of sin. So for Jesus to become sin, he had to be separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit for a moment in history. I think that's where his anguish was. Something that never happened before in history and shall never happen again happened in that moment on the cross. And we'll see it as we dig in next week to some of the things that happened on the cross. We'll see it. We'll totally see it. It's even prophesied in the Psalms. David says it. And we'll see it. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. He said, if it is possible, if there's any other way for man to be saved, if they could just be really good people and still get to you, if they can make enough lamb sacrifices and still get to heaven, if they could do anything else besides me having to experience the wrath of you and the separation from you and the Holy Spirit, Father, but I know there's not, so your will be done and not mine. I surrender. That song that we sing sometimes in the old hymn, I Surrender All. You guys know that one, right? I Surrender All. And before service, uh, John and I were talking a little bit, and it says, you know, we actually, a lot of times, we're like, I surrender all of this. But you ain't getting this stuff back here. I got these, right? You have complete control of my life. I surrender all. All of those things, I'm holding to these things. Eventually, you might get them, probably not. I surrender all, right? Jesus had to come to that point where he's like, I'm going to do it. I got to suffer. I have to. He knew what he came for, yet he's still anguishing in the garden. Yet he's still anguishing in the garden. Acts chapter four, verse 12 says, there's salvation in no one else. No other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It had to be Jesus. It had to be Jesus alone. And there's no other way that men may be saved. But through him, but through him, this had to take place. He knew the answer but the reality of what he was about to experience was so great. He had to surrender his human will and submit fully to the Father. Now we're gonna jump back to John chapter 18, and here comes Judas. Here comes Judas. What a sad, tragic story. Walking with Jesus for three years and never getting it. You ever known somebody that was in the church for a long time, and they had all the knowledge of what it meant to be but they never were. They could quote the verses, they could do the things, they could tell you all about it, and maybe they could even sing the worship or walk through the motions, but they never were. It's pretty interesting in the Last Supper, the rest of the disciples didn't even think that Judas would be the one when Jesus said, hey, it's the one that I'm gonna dip my bread in the cup and I'm gonna give him some bread and he dips his bread in the cup and gives it to Judas and he's like, it's that guy. And the disciples, and then he whispers in Judas's ear, go do what you must do. 
And the rest of the disciples are like, oh, I guess we left something out and Judas has got to go to the store and get stuff. I mean, he's a treasurer. He probably had to go get some more matzah, some more of that bread so that we could do, maybe some more wine, maybe something. Who is it, Lord? Which one will betray you? You know, they never once thought it was going to be Judas. He was that good. He was that good. Three years. Three years. Judas. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests, this is John chapter 18, verse 3, uh, from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. The power in his name. The power of his name. This part's epic. This is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. It is. I know, and people get mad at me because uh, of of, uh, some of the things here, but listen, here's what's happening, okay? Now, they're, they're coming to arrest Jesus. Now, they obviously heard who Jesus is, and they have some concept of what this man can do. I mean, he's healed people. He's done all kinds of amazing things, and he's kind of slipped out of their hands every time that they tried to kill him, Right? So this time, okay, they come with a cohort of Roman soldiers and a group of Pharisee leaders. Now, a modern cohort or, or during the, the, the time of Rome, a cohort could be as many as 300 to 600 soldiers. Some people say it came with a half a cohort, okay? First century cohort was probably more like, and again, we don't exactly know, so theologians debate all about this. We don't know how many people were there, but a a first century cohort, they said, could have probably been about 80, okay? Either way, there's soldiers, weapons, torches, lanterns. Let's say there's 100 people there. Some theologians think there was 300 as they study this passage of Scripture, just based on what the different gospels say. A hundred people came to arrest one guy. And they all came with weapons and torches and Jesus has nothing. Now they know that he has a band of followers. But a hundred people, a hundred plus people came to arrest this one guy. And here's the part that I love. They come up to Jesus and Jesus looks at them and says, who are you looking for? He knew, right? But he asked him anyway. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, you know how those soldiers are. You know they're big, tough, bad guys. And the Bible says, and when he spoke the words, they all drew back and fell down. They all drew back and fell down. They all fell down. 
the name of Jesus called all of these unbelievers to fall flat on their back. No matter how big, no matter how powerful, how young or how old, they all equally fell on their back in the dirt. That's my favorite part. And I, this is where I get in trouble because I see a little bit of sarcasm here. I just see a little bit of sarcasm here. And people get mad when you say Jesus might have been a little bit sarcastic. Okay? Now imagine this scene. Jesus just said, I am he. They all fell down. Now they all stand back up. And they're all dusting themselves off. Okay? Now these are soldiers. And leaders, Pharisees, and important Jews, and all these kind of things, and get your dignity back, okay? Now, this is what I imagine, okay? And maybe my imagination is a little wild, but this is what I imagine. All these guys, all of a sudden, instead of standing like this, they're probably standing a little bit more like this with their swords drawn, right? They've dusted themselves off, they've got themselves ready now, and Jesus stands there calmly and says, Who did you say you were looking for? Come on, guys. Come on. That's funny. That's funny. Jesus was showing them that he was in complete control of the situation. You're going to take me, but I want you to know that it's by my power that you get to take me. So first, I'm going to put you on your back. I want you to know that if I wanted to, I could stop you right here, but I don't because you're part of God's plan so that he can save men like you, so that he can save men like you. But let me first show you that it's not by your power, by your might, by your strength that you do these things, but by my power, by my might, by my strength that you are able to do these things. Who did you say you were looking for? That's what I imagine right here. You, you say it. I said it last time. We all fell down. You say it this time. Jesus of Nazareth. Probably with a little shakier voice than the first time. A little less confidence than last time. And then as Jesus begins to speak again, I'm guessing all of them are like, brace yourself. Brace yourself. Right? I mean, come on. Isn't that how you would react in the situation? Or maybe my imagination runs a little wild. But Jesus is showing them who he is. He's revealing his power and his majesty in that moment that with a spoken word, he can change the situation. With a spoken word, he can change the situation. Hundreds of soldiers. Boom! They all fell down. Power in his name. Power in his name. It's so awesome. Man, if you're afraid, speak the name of Jesus. If you don't know what's going on or what to say, speak the name of Jesus. Because here's the reality. Even the devil trembles at the name of Jesus. Even the devil trembles at the name of Jesus. When we have a right and true relationship with Jesus Christ, the devil's scared. He truly is. He truly is. And that's why he comes after you. 
because he's afraid, because he knows there's power when you're wielding that name. And he knows that he's going to lose some of his constituents. He knows that men are going to fall on their face and repent before a holy God because of the power of that name. And he's scared. The devil doesn't want to lose his people. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. Continuing on, John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. I love Peter. Peter, he just, he's just something else. John chapter 18, verses 10 and 11 says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? That the Father has given me. I call this part misguided zeal. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. In Matthew chapter 26, we see the end result of what's happening here. Okay? Now get this picture. Jesus has already told his disciples, We're fighting a battle, but it's a spiritual battle, and you won't need your swords. And Peter says, I'm going to bring it anyway, just in case, you know. Because he's already told Jesus when Jesus said, listen, they're going to arrest me. I'm going to go to the cross. And he didn't say it in exactly those words. And Peter said, I'll never, over my dead body. And Jesus said, oh, Peter. And he said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Because here's the great thing. And we kind of skip through this passage, and we don't have time to go over everything. But here's a great thing. Peter was standing there one day, and Jesus said, hey, Peter, who do men say that I am? He said, some say Elijah, some say Spirit of John the Baptist, and some say this, and the prophet, and all these types of things. And he says, hey, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said, oh, I say that you are the Lord, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. And he said, oh, heaven above has given you these words. And oh, Peter, you know, because I would have been too. I'd have been like, that's right. Did y'all hear what Jesus just said about me? That's right. And Jesus said, now I'm going to go die and raise from the dead. And Peter says, not over my dead body. You won't get behind me, Satan. What happened to the This all happened in a very short amount of time. Peter went from like the most prideful guy in the whole place, right? A haughty spirit comes before destruction. Pride becomes before the fall, right? Okay, so Peter, heaven above, my Father in heaven above has given you these words. Get behind me, Satan. Peter's like, I gotta redeem myself, right? Now, (laughs) this is, is, I, I like this because I think to myself, I'm like, Peter was a fisherman, not a soldier. My guess is he probably didn't have a lot of practice with the sword, I'm just thinking, just thinking here, okay? Just spitballing, stay with me, right? So my guess is Peter's goal was to chop the guy's head off. That's just my guess, right? And Peter, because he was such a crafty swordsman, missed and chopped the guy's ear off. I mean, who goes for somebody's ear in a battle? So Peter pulls out his sword 
And he swings it, and it chops the guy's ear clean off the side of his face. Now, Matthew 26 tells us that Jesus bent down into the dirty ground, picked up the severed ear, and smashes it back on the side. I added smashes for effect. Okay, puts it back on the side of the guy's head, removes his hand, and everything is perfect. So you know that all of those Pharisees and Roman soldiers were about to kill Peter because what he had done was just a great offense. It was a declaration of war. For him to have cut off the high priest's servant's ear like that. It was a battle cry. And Jesus picks up the ear, sticks it back on, and every and Malchus himself was probably like, ah, 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 ah. Did, did I just dream that? Can you imagine? I mean, wouldn't it be like that? Wouldn't you feel like, what, what just happened? Who is this man? Oh my goodness. And the rest of those people there got to see that display of power. They fell on their backs. Now the Bible doesn't tell us, but I wonder how many of those guys were like, I don't know, man. I, this guy seems legit. He seems real. I've never seen anybody. Did you see him? He just picked up Malchus's ear and just stuck it back on the side of his head, and it was all fine. Like later on at the party, you know, when they're doing the trials of Jesus, you know everybody's going up to Malchus. Can I see it? Pull it. Is it really stuck? Is it really good? Nothing? Not even a scar? Wow. I saw it happen with my own two eyes. What happened? The Bible never talks about it again. Just think that, I mean, it actually mentions Malchus' name again. He's one of the people that will recognize Peter a little bit later on, and somebody will say, hey, hey, hey that's the guy who pulled his sword out on Malchus, wasn't it? Misguided zeal. Misguided zeal. How many times have we gotten out in front of the Lord? How many times has God said, this is what I want you to do? And you says, yes. And so uh, we, we, uh, this is all going to happen like this. So I need to go on and do this. And God's saying, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait. Wait for me. And you're like, I will wait for you, Lord. I'll be obedient. I'll do everything that you do. And then you take 10 steps forward. And God said, don't take 10 steps forward. Not yet. But he's so loving and he's so gracious and he's so good to us that he picks up the broken pieces that we made a mess of and he goes, let's put that back together. Let's back you up a few steps and put you right back where I said we needed to be. It's okay. You need to wait on me. You need to wait on me. Here's the reality. Every single one of us is in a battle. We're all in a battle. What is it? What is that battle? What is the battle that we're in? Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your own walk with the Lord. Maybe it's some kind of dependency. Maybe it's something else, but we're in a battle. And I love that song, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. We sang it last weekend. Remember the song, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. And it comes from 2 Chronicles, verse 20. 
I mean, chapter 20, verse 15. And it says, and he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at the great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle belongs to the Lord, guys. It doesn't belong to us. Just like Peter, we don't quite know how to wield the sword in this spiritual battle. And in that song, as it says, the battle belongs to the Lord, it says, and when I fight, I will fight on my knees. The battle belongs to the Lord. When I fight, I will fight on my knees. What did Jesus ask his disciples to do? He said, stay here and pray with me and for me. Because we're going into battle, guys. Pray. This battle is not ours. It belongs to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. God showed me something many years ago about David. And we do David and Goliath, and we're like, oh, yeah, David, we're like the little David, and, and you know, our enemies like Goliath, and yeah, kind of, sort of, not really. You're more like the rock in David's sling. You're just a useful tool that God uses from time to time. But God is the warrior. God is the one that fights the battle. He's the one that actually does the work. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let's not get ahead of the Lord. We're going to take communion tonight. And you know, Peter told them, I mean, Jesus told them, stay here and pray. Like I said, we're all in a battle. Are you praying for your friends to be saved? Are you praying for your marriage to be restored? Are you praying for your marriage to be healthier? Are you praying for your health, for your children, for the wayward son, for your own spiritual walk? Let's fight this battle on our knees. Before service tonight, we were talking about just the spiritual battle that we experience just walking together as a church family. There's not a single one of us that doesn't want to see Redemption Church with Hundreds of people filling the seat, coming to the Lord, and Delray Beach just crumbling under the power of the Spirit of God, and this church just kind of doing something. We know we have an incredibly gifted pastor, gifted members and servants. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about Pastor Daniel, okay? I'm so excited for him to come back. Because I know that God wants to do great things. But I know that that battle is going to be won in prayer. There is a battle. There's a battle for Delray Beach and the Spirit of God in this place. There's a battle for our own hearts. As we grow closer to God, the enemy says, ah, uh, ah, uh, no. No, 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 no. Oh, you're going to start fasting and praying? Dang it. You haven't done that in 10 years. I thought I had you. Nope. Nope. Battle belongs to the Lord. Battle belongs to the Lord, not to me. So as we prepare our hearts tonight, think about the surrender that Jesus gave. I surrender all. Lord, whatever my situation is, I lay it down. I surrender it to you. That doesn't mean it's going to turn out right. 
perfect, good, but it means that he's in control and you recognize it. You know, it wasn't until hindsight that this situation turned out right and good. It wasn't until hindsight the disciples thought the whole thing had fallen apart. They went back to their lives and they thought, ah, just three years of my life down the drain, what just happened? I thought we were gonna like reign in a kingdom. I thought everything was gonna work out. And in God's big picture, it did work out. Not the way that they wanted, not the way that they thought. They had to surrender their own wills. Jesus had to surrender his own will. You have to surrender your own will and say, Lord, this is yours. Everything that I am, everything that I have, my children, my marriage, everything, my finances, I lay it on your altar, Lord. I surrender myself completely, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. So let's pray together and let's prepare our hearts together as we worship the Lord. This is Pastor Daniel Williams with Redemption Church. Thank you so much for listening to this message. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube so you never miss a message. The mission of Redemption Church is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus, and we would love to have you partner with us. Feel free to share these messages with your family and friends. And also, if you'd like to donate to the ministry, go to redemptiondb.com. God bless you.